What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the K-Turn Podcast. I am your host, Kristen, so let's shift gears into cruise control and get right into it. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to check in on my listeners, you know, to see how y'all are doing, because I'm not going to lie, I've been going through it. I don't know about y'all, but I know my week has been real hectic and crazy. So I'm going to challenge you all to answer three questions for yourself before we get into today's topic. So since the topic for today is about being mindful, I want to ask some questions about what you're being mindful of within yourself with this week. So number one, how does my body feel? Is it stressed? Is it energized, overworked? Does it feel replenished? How does your body feel? Another question I have is, how do I feel? What can I do to improve my current mental state? Whether it being like you're in like a, on a scale of zero to 10, how can I go from a two to a five? Or maybe as drastic as a five to a 10, or maybe even go up a number. And then my last question is, what's one thing that I did this week that brought me pleasure, joy, and happiness? You don't have to answer these questions now, but just some food for thought to think about, reflect on, and consider. All right, so let's hop into it. Now, today's episode is about being mindful. So what does it mean to be mindful? Well, mindfulness is the ability to fully be present, aware of where we are and what we're doing, and, you know, not overly um, reacting or making ourselves overwhelmed by what's going on around us. And by us bringing awareness to what we're experiencing through our senses, state of mind, that's mindfulness. I'm going to say that again. So by bringing awareness to what you're experiencing through your senses and state of mind, which are also your thoughts and emotions, that's mindfulness. Now, when you think about it and you really want to dig in, it can really tap into different parts of your mind. So one, I mentioned our um, senses or sensations. This can be such as like the smell of fresh bread or the feeling of air on your skin or maybe the way that, you know, a hand grazes against your skin, you know, things that like cause sensations throughout our body. Um, the second thing I mentioned was talking about your state of mind. So one part of it is your emotions. You know, are you feeling loved? Are you feeling hated? Are you craving something that you're not receiving? You know, are you in a bad or gray area? And then the last one is our thoughts. You know, stuff like, you know, maybe miscellaneous things you may be thinking like, oh, would red hair look good on me? Should I chop off my hair? How did my friend make me feel the other day? Or, hmm, how do I really feel about that test I took the other day? So, on mindfulness.org, um, I got some more information about mindfulness just because, you know, I always like to educate and educate myself and my listeners. So, mindfulness.org says that mindfulness is rooted in the Buddhist and Hindu teachings. Buddhism includes a journey towards enlightenment, and the concept of the satai, which encompasses attention, awareness, and being present. This is considered the first step towards enlightenment, which is a part of mindfulness. The term was roughly translated from the ancient language Pali into the term mindfulness, and that's where we get the word from. Um, so this emergement of mindfulness in Western culture can be attributed to John Kabat-Zinn. So this is one of our, you know, many different psychologists that exist in the world today that come up with thoughts and principles and different um, theories of such of, you know, different things going on in the world. So Kabat-Zinn studied mindfulness under several Buddhist teachers, such as Philip Kapalu and Thich Nhat Hanh. So yeah, that's a little information for you. But... Since we're talking about mindfulness, I really wanted to explore um, Kabat-Zinn's, you know, seven pillars. So you can find this information on edgewoodhealthnetwork.com. 
Um, it kind of dives into the seven different pillars of John Kabat-Zinn. Um, I took my own notes and studied some information about this. So this is me just kind of letting you all know beyond my studying and information I retained and also educating you. So the following seven pillars of mindfulness written by John Kabat-Zinn bring to light the principles that you can use and practice to achieve balance in your own life and even maintain the progress you've made in your recovery from addiction or even mental health disorders. Because you know what? It's important that we get our minds right and we get ourselves right. And many times we kind of turn ourselves off from that by not being mindfulness of ourselves and others around us. So, you know, it's important that we hold ourselves accountable to those certain things that we need or, you know, being there for others or what we need others to give us. So John Kabat-Zinn's a pretty cool guy. And I really was, you know, I really learned a lot from these seven different pillars of mindfulness. So I'm just going to, you know, be another teacher and, you know, just pass along information, kind of like how John Kabat-Zinn did with the Buddhist teachings. So the seven pillars of mindfulness. So the first pillar is non-judging. So this is the pillar where we see things as good or bad. There's, you know... There's no gray area. It's just black or white. This is like atomic judgment that informs our choices in ways we don't even know. So it's like your unconscious is making you decide things and determine things and, you know, act on them based upon unconscious things. But you find awareness and recognize the judgments. You automatically make and work around them. So essentially, when you find awareness, you can recognize the judgments that you've made and kind of correct yourself, you know, because sometimes a lot of people are quick to judge things. Um, they may have heard something about somebody or, you know, um, they based it based upon um, an experience um, that they've seen the person instead of really, you know, really get to knowing the situation or even like jumping to conclusions is another one. So some advice is don't be hard on yourself or others who have relapsed or have different ways of coping. And by that, I mean, you know, you can't judge a person for falling back into bad habits. It's important to keep that channel of communication at the point where, you know, you're clearly communicating your thoughts and feelings and it's not being honored, then that's a little bit different. But non-judging is more so for the fact that don't judge someone based upon what you know off of them and hold them to that standard. Kind of give them a clean slate and allow them to, you know, prove themselves wrong. And it's okay if they do slip in and out. Everyone has different ways of coping. But, you know, again, it's about what you can and can handle. And if you can't handle someone slipping back, that's okay. And, you know, that's you being mindful of yourself. But, you know, don't be so hard on yourself or others for slipping back into such bad habits. Which ties into the second pillar, which is patience. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the saying that patience is a virtue, right? So patience is more so about understanding the events of your life will unfold in time and that you have to accept it how it is. A lot of people focus on how to control their lives, how to make certain decisions for their life to turn out in a certain way. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, you know, we become impatient. We feel chaotic or displaced. And we're so focused on our future and the effects of choices that we make that, you know, we don't allow ourselves to really live in the moment. And, you know, sometimes you need to be in the moment to be present or to live in it. Because when you're so focused on your future, it takes away from your present and you're not mindful of the things right in front of you. And that happens a lot. You know, I've done it myself, you know, as someone who's graduating college in a couple of weeks um, you know, I'm I'm thinking like 10 steps ahead. Oh my gosh, like I got to get a job, blah, 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 blah. Like I'm stressed out. What am I going to do after college? What am I going to do after college? That I'm not even enjoying the time that I have now with my friends left in college. So, you know, just being mindful of that. So some advice, you know, in reality, we can't make everything better. But, you know, recovery takes time and you got to be patient and trust the process and not trying to rush those things and get yourself ahead of the game, you know. Kind of allow space and time for yourself so that, you know, you can be patient with yourself. And that affects also how you're patient with others. And be patient with others, too. As you know, we're all learning and we're all young. And, you know, and it's important that, you know, we just understand that. 
So the third pillar of mindfulness is called beginner's mind. Now, I didn't really know about this. I had to read a little bit more about it. But um, here's some information. Again, I want to cite um, edgewoodhealthnetwork.com. Um, please note that this is not um, all my writing. These are also um, things that I pulled from it and notes from interpreted by myself. Um, so beginner's mind. Basically, it basically states it as it's easy to lose yourself when you begin to believe what you hear, see, and experience, which means you allow outside thoughts about you, how people see you, um, things you hear about yourself, or even experiences, you kind of make yourself become those things. So, you know, life is ever-changing and no one moment is the same. So, you know, don't let that moment define you. Don't let it, you know, make you become or engulf yourself in, oh, I'm, I'm this person because, you know, um, I did this, 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 this. That's not the way that it goes, you know. Each experience is unique with its own unique experiences. Me going to one basketball game at my school will not be the same experience at another basketball game at my school, you know. One of the games, they may be losing really bad. And I'm like, dang, I had a horrible time. And then my next experience at the next game, the team could win. And I'm like, dang, I'm having a great time. We're winning. So, you know, just be easy on yourself that don't hold a standard that all experiences are the same. Life is unique. And that's why we do not repeat things. That's why we have a restart to each day. And that, you know, allows you time to have new experiences. So, you know... You need to focus on what you believe and what you already know true to yourself. Because a lot of times, you know, I'm a part of Generation Z and a lot of times, you know, social media and all these little apps where people post rumors and, you know, um, how celebrities perceive relationships and we are like, oh, it's got to be this. Or even, you know, like having to put on a front in social media to look like you're perfect when really we're all mentally struggling and all going through it, you know. Focus on what you believe and already know about yourself and don't let people define who you are and make you feel like you're something that you are not. So some advice that there's no one road to recovery and the road is rough. It's bumpy. Um, you know, something about me, like I just started my mental health journey. I've been in therapy since the age of like maybe eight years old and I'm 23 and you know, I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. And, you know, I went through a very traumatic experience um, in 2018 during my freshman year here at my college. And, you know, I mentally checked out. I checked out. And at that time, um, I had stopped seeing my therapist because she moved practices. And I felt abandoned. And I quickly lost all the things that she was telling me to believe in myself about. Because I was like, I don't have someone else telling me them. But I didn't believe them for myself. And it took me a while to get back to therapy. And, you know, I ignored my mental health time and time and time again. And, you know, it took me, you know, to have, you know, an episode at a, or a breaking point where, you know, I lost my mind for two seconds. And, you know, and it's okay to ask for help. And that's something that I've always struggled with. And, you know, I know I've always suffered with depression and anxiety. But, you know, I knew what I needed. And, you know... I had to think like, you know, I'm not going to lose myself upon like all these thoughts and perceptions that I have, you know, like I need to be present now. I need to focus on me and know that, hmm, I know I need help. I got to stop telling myself that I don't need it. And, you know, I've been seeing a psychiatrist now for a little over a month and I started medication to treat my depression, anxiety, PTSD and panic attack disorders, you know. I suffer from a lot and, you know, it's been a journey and um, it's a learning process. And I share that because that's my truth and it's nothing to be ashamed of or for anyone who has like this superstition. Oh, you're crazy um, by taking pills to help it. Like, no, medication is OK. I'm not really one for medication, but, you know, I'm learning more about myself and I'm like, hmm, I'm going to try something that may not work. And that's not my one road to recovery therapy. I needed a little more help. So, you know, I started um, my medication and it's been amazing. And um, it's been a journey. I'm not going to sit here and be like, I've had all ups and no downs. Like, you know, it's going to be a process, but I'm working with myself.
which brings me into the fourth pillar, trust. Having trust in yourself, your beliefs, your intuition is essential to bringing you peace. And by bringing your own um, persona and letting your ideals guide you ensures that you're following your own path. Like I said earlier in the previous pillar, we let a lot of um, things in our generation kind of dictate how we view things and people, like how, you know, their screwed up mindsets of, oh, you know, girls need to be thin and, you know, or voluptuous to be attractive. No, anything can be attractive. Why does it have to limit to that? Why do we confine ourselves to all these standards and connotations and we put all ourselves in these boxes and we feel like we have to be labeled and labeled and labeled and we're so scared to share our thoughts opinions and be real on social media and people let people see the real us what's wrong with being honest you know but you have to be open to listen and to learn and know the choices that you make should be based upon your thoughts and beliefs don't decide things because your friends or your partner or your family tells you to. If you want to go to college to be a communications major and your parents are telling you you got to be a doctor, you go to college because you want to be a communications major. Your profession is the job that you will work the rest of your life. If your friend is going to jump off a bridge, are you going to jump off with them? No. You have your own mind. You have to trust your own thoughts, opinions, and belief and make choices for yourself. But, you know, some advice is to trust yourself of those choices that you make and make the right decisions for keeping your life on track. You know, the nobody knows you best than you. And again, like I said, as someone who struggles with mental health, you know, sometimes I may think things are good for me and they're not. And that's okay that to have people that guide you, but don't let that define you. So the fifth pillar would be non-striving which kind of ties into that. Trusting in yourself means knowing you are enough. You are striving to be better or different. can be a distraction. A lot of people want to be unique, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between being unique or trying so hard to be different to the point where you think that no one can associate with you at any point like oh no that's just me you know embrace yourself be comfortable in who you are that's more so speaking upon like you know <laughs> you know I'm a nerd I have no shame in that I watch anime I still turn pages in books you know I still go to church that's not common in my generation you know and you know I you know I embrace my nerdness and I have nothing wrong with that. I'm a fashionable nerd. You know, I'm not really into the same things as people um, are. Like, I've never watched the boondocks. Um, I grew up in a very strict household where, um, you know, television was not to be watched Monday through Friday. It was only the weekends. It was only for certain hours and our electronics got taken at a certain point in time. But you know what? I'm so lucky because I learned how to communicate with people. And, you know... I remember in, <laughs> I remember, um, I didn't get my first phone until like high school. And everyone was like, that's so weird. How do you not have a phone in social media? Like you still read books. And I'm like, what's wrong with reading books? What's wrong with not growing up in a household with technology? I didn't have my first TV until college. And that's how I watched SpongeBob. The only two channels I was allowed to watch was Noggin and Boomerang. If you guys even know what that is. But you know. I didn't start watching Spongebob until college. You know, the first few seasons were funny, but after a while I was like, eh, but you know, people called me weird because they were like, wow, you've never watched Spongebob or the the Boondocks? Like, how are you even human? And I'm like, I'm me. You know, I grew up in a different household and I have no shame in that. So, you know, advice is don't allow your negative feelings to rule over your mental. Don't let people make you think you are weird. Because weird just means that you're different and there's nothing wrong with being different and not doing what everybody else is doing. You don't want to be a bandwagon. You want to be your own person. And, you know, again, embrace who you are. Be unapologetically you. Which brings me to the sixth pillar, which is acceptance. 
Now, when John Kabat-Zinn mentions this principle, he's not just talking about like self-satisfaction or being, you know, content with things that you don't like, but more so being able to accept things the way they are. One biggest struggle I had was, you know, I kind of took off during COVID from college. Online learning was very hard for me. You know, I suffer from chronic migraines and a lot of health issues. So, you know, it wasn't the best. So, you know, I came into college, like I said, in 2018. I had to watch all my friends graduate in 2020. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Like, why can't this be me? I'm going to be all alone. Like, you know, like, forget college. Like, I'm done. Like, I couldn't do it in four years. And I, you know, I held such a mental hold over myself because I was like, dang, I couldn't do college in four years. But I had to accept the fact that, listen, Kristen, you are going to be here for another year. You took a semester off, kind of. You went through something really traumatic in freshman year that affected, you know, your performance in academics. You struggle a little more in school and you have accommodations, you know. I had to come to terms with the fact, like, it's okay to be in college for five years. Heck, sometimes it takes people longer than that. It took me about five years to, you know, complete my undergraduate. And, you know, I'm still struggling to this day. And there's nothing wrong with that. You have to accept that things are the way they are. Like, let's say, for example, like, you're in a situation and you don't like the outcome, you know, John Kabat-Zinn is basically saying, don't be mad about the outcome so much to the point where you can't accept it for what it is. Because then you're building that animosity and all that negativity and anger. And, you know, it can then begin to, you know, make you biased. And don't be clouded by your biases, you know, be open, you know, learn to see the facts and accept them for the way they are. And the last pillar is about, you know, this is the let go. This is the point in time where truth is relaxing can be hard. I'd be lying to you if I told you I know how to relax. I am one of the most anxious people in the world. Like one thing that I learned with my um, mental health is every time I would try to lay to bed at night, I would have an immense panic attack. To the point where I couldn't even breathe and I felt like I was drowning or someone was sitting on my chest because I was I could not get my body to rest because my heart, my mind, and myself was still racing and still going and so concerned about everything going on. And I'm just like, I need to rest. Like I would go three days without sleeping, just up thinking, and you know, I'm like so concerned with our thoughts and ideas, and you know. When relaxing is hard, you know, it's because we become so concerned with the thoughts and ideas in our heads and we allow it to rule our emotions and sleeping and other things of that nature and uh, even our performance. And, you know, it's okay to know not how to relax. That's normal. You know, that just brings stress and distracts you from what matters. Don't allow your thoughts to overstress you to the point where you're not focusing on the things that matter and it's taking you away from life pleasures, you know. You have to be mindful that, you know, we must face ourselves from wary thoughts and focus on the present. You know, stress reduction is often an effect of mindfulness practice. But the ultimate goal of mindfulness isn't meant to be stress reduction. The goal of mindfulness is to wake up to the inner workings of your mental, emotional, and physical processes. Let me say that again. The goal of mindfulness is to wake up to the inner workings of our mental, emotional, and physical pro- sorry, processes. So yeah, I hope you learned something from the seven pillars. But so not done because what's another thing about mindfulness? Self-care. I don't know about you, but I'm horrible sometimes when it comes to self-care. I'm currently learning how to try to do my own nails. I always do my left hand because it stresses me out thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not a lefty. I can't do my right one. Or whether it's a face mask or taking time out for me. So, you know, what is self-care? How do we define this? 
So mindful.org describes self-care as this. Self-care is the practice of taking an active role in protecting your own well-being, pursuing happiness, and having the ability, tools, and resources to respond to periods of stress so that they don't result in an imbalance and lead to a health crisis. Now, you know, what does that really mean? Let's dive a little deeper into that. You know, less harsh and big words. So what is self-care? You know, self-care means asking yourself, what do I need? What do I need? And it also means following through on the honest answer. The biggest thing about mindfulness and self-care is being honest with yourself of the answers to these questions. You cannot be dishonest with yourself because then you're doing yourself a disservice by not being mindful of these things. You may know that they exist, but if you don't address them, that's not you being mindful. Self-care can be as simple as, you know, getting into bed early on a work night. Or, you know, it could be like, you know, oh, like I may have, I do this thing called wind downs and I think I'm going to start incorporating it. Um, even with my podcast, um, once a month, my friends and I get together and, you know, I do something called a wind down, like to wind down, but it's a wind down because we drink wine and, you know, we, you know, we each come with a, with a bottle about three because it's three of us. Um, my friend, another one of my friends and I started it before. So it was the two of us, but I've, you know, made it intricate between all my friends. And, you know, we just grab a glass of wine and we just talk about our days and unwind and relax. Like, girl, I know it's been like two months, but this is this is this happened in my life. And I'm so sorry I haven't updated you. Or even if it's like a nice jam sesh where we wind down and, you know, we're listening to Janae Eiko, Frank Ocean, Tyler, the creator, Sir, Sabrina Claudio, Daniel Caesar, you know, like just like getting in tune with us. That's self-care. You know, and it's as hard as, you know, taking a look at some of the habits you've created for yourself and long-term effects, like going on your phone for 30 minutes before you go to bed. You know, you're keeping your mind racing up at night and you're not allowing your body to be at rest. Or, you know, always being supportive of your friends and being their therapist. Well, how do I know that, you know, I've taken on too much and I'm overstimulated by everyone's issues that I'm not addressing mine, you know? So self-care is essential, you know. It's something that's human that we all need to do. And it's not just, you know, among us, but everyone of us who's been paying attention and watching communities come apart needs self-care. Self-care is also community. Um, You know, my school has a black student union, BSU, and, you know, One form of therapy for me has always been a part of being a part of the Black Student Union fashion show. And, you know, I'm surrounded by my people in a safe space where I can talk about things that may not be offered at my private white institution where I go to school. So, you know, the communities that we make, the friends that we make, the mentors we have, the friendships we hold, those communities can also be self-care and a safe space. You know, we all feel the weight of the time that we're living in. Whether it's, you know, for me, um, I don't like watching the news because I don't like a lot of negativity. But, you know, anytime I hear about an innocent um, person being killed or, you know, a natural disaster happening or a war, you know, there's a lot that we're living in that contributes to our stress unconsciously and consciously. Or, you know, seeing my best friend cry or seeing my girls go through it mentally and they don't fully understand what's going on and they can't articulate that to me and I have to watch them sit through a mental warfare or you know me trying to finish college while addressing my mental health while going through a lot of other things you know the time that we live in you know we're all being called to do our part and to to ensure more perfect unity you know we got to lift each other up so how are we going to do that let's talk about a self-care plan so what is that Get out your note, your notepads and pens, because we're about to. I'm about to make y'all do something. We're going to create a self care plan. 
And this is three reasons why you should do it. By making a self-care plan, this is you making preventative measures. This is basically creating like a roadmap or, you know, for my generation, like Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. It's basically like your survival guide that's unique to you, you know, like. And it doesn't have to be in moments of crisis, but this is for, for moments when you're not in crisis. You're directing yourself to be your best self, reflect on things that you need for when you do experience your worst moments. And again, only you know how intense your stress can get. You can only tell your friends so much. Like, you could lie to them. Like, a lot of times I'd be telling my friends, girl, I'm fine. <sighs> On zero to 100, I'm really at negative 500. But I don't want them to worry. But, you know, I have a plan in my head where I can say I'm okay because I know I will be okay later on. And, you know, that ties into the second reason, you know. Having a plan takes a lot of, you know, work out of what you do in the moments of crisis. So from a mindfulness point of view, you know, it helps you respond instead of react. A lot of times it's often better to react on emotion and that doesn't always solve things, you know. But if we're able to respond better, that can help us. Because when you have a plan in place, you may feel more controlled of the circumstances in your life that may not feel quite chaotic anymore because you have that plan and it's okay to get chaotic sometimes we are human we have emotions people fall off the bandwagon there's nothing wrong with that and that's what you have to be comfortable in and you know again the plan just helps you stay on course it literally makes it easier for you to have a personal self-care strategy so, yes. So, how are we going to create a self-care plan? Well, mindfulness.org then also has um, five rules of self-care. Now, if you would like to, um, mindfulness.org has a more in-depth article about it. Um, so, you just look up self-care in their article and um, type in how to create a self-care plan. But there is another article on their website that is titled The Five Rules of Self-Care. Um, I just want to point them out to you because this may help you with, you know, building your plan and holding yourself accountable and, you know, making those thoughts and decisions on, you know, what may help you with your um, self-care plan. So here are the five rules of self-care. Yourself is bigger than you. You know, sometimes you may feel guilty about self-care because it may go against the things that we've been taught about being a good human. But it's an effective activist, you know. Self-care means putting ourselves first. And, you know, when you've been conditioned to believe that this is wrong and selfish, it screws with your mind to think it's selfish to make time for yourself. You know, real change makers are meant to suffer and endure hardship, proper nutrition, healthy relationships, and, you know, a lot of other things. We're entitled to experience the same thing that other people do. And the world self has such a negative connotation that this context, because it seems only about the individual when it's not. It's more than just you. It's your mental health, your being, how what you're doing may be affecting others, how others may be concerned about you. Two, that ties into how self-care is inclusive. One of the main issues that, you know, self-care is viewed today is mostly geared towards women who are white and of means, you know, have the money. For example, I used to work at this bougie spa, one of my favorite spas, um, Sojo um, Spa Club. And it's this authentic Korean spa. Um, the owner wanted to bring his culture to America. And, you know, it's a little pricey, you know. Not everyone may not be able to afford it. But, you know, I will spend my last penny to go there if it means my self-care. And, you know, it's not limited to people who have the means. Self-care is for everyone. You know, it's become associated with the purchasing of goods and services that you indulge. But, you know what, let's be more clear. Self-care is for everyone. 
men, minorities, individuals, everybody is entitled and open to self-care. And even those who are struggling to meet ends meet. And it doesn't have to relate to just spending money. You know, it's kind of like in order for us to be collectively be successful, it's essential to shift the needs to happen. And the needs are taking care of you. And, you know, only when the organizations we support run and invest our time in and money is starting to view self-care as a pillar rather than a luxury. Like how, you know, a lot of different jobs have like self-care days and paid time off for things like that. Or even like mental leaves or medical leaves. Like at my school, we have something called medical leave when a student, you know, is not, you know, in the right state of mind or, you know, has a medical emergency or, you know, needs a mental health break from college and they don't get penalized for it. And then that brings me to rule number three. Self-care is not self-indulgent, which means, you know, it's not usually compromise of behaviors that alter our mood or provide us escape. For temporary means a lot of people when they think of self-care they think of yoga and meditation and oh they're about to put me in a room and be like oh you're on an island close your eyes and breathe tell me what you see no it's not just that how can you tell the difference between indulgence and true acts of self-care not saying yoga and meditation is not um self-care because i actively do that but you know ask yourself the act is a quick fix or is it something that truly serves you? Does this quick fix yield long-term benefits or is it potentially harmful? Um, one thing I was talking to my therapist about was um, I love going for walks. I love the sun. But I refrain from walking in daylight because my whole campus knows me. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, if... If, if I go and I go for a walk in the daylight, I'm going to be sitting there running into everybody and then I'm not going to be able to enjoy my walk. So I wait till 1 a.m. when it's dark out and I do my walk. But how is that helping me? I like walking, but I love the sun. By me walking in the dark at night, that's me not wanting to be seen because I know when I'm in the dark, no one will notice me. And I can walk in peace. And is that really helping me? Is that walk actually helping me? Or is me walking in the sunlight and setting boundaries like, hey, I'm on a walk right now. You know, I'll talk to you later. But thanks for checking in on me. You know, it's all the difference. And, you know, and once you figure out what truly serves you, fight the urge to feel guilty about doing it. There's nothing wrong with that. You need to choose what works best for you. Which ties into, you know, the fifth, sorry, the fourth rule, you know, self-care is difficult and worth the work. You know, self-care can be really hard because it's a long-term thing. It's not something that happens overnight or a couple of weeks or a month or even a couple of months. Sometimes it takes years to master, you know. Ironically, you know, it's kind of like politically and social justice work. You can't do social change overnight. It takes a foundation, a team, one track mind, and, you know, really setting in and planting the seeds to make it grow. Self-care is planting those seeds. You know, kind of like how, you know, when you're grass, when you just let it grow, it's crazy and it's high and like all these things are coming at it. But, you know, when you're making a landscape, you take your time to make it aesthetically pleasing and cater to your self-satisfaction. That's the same thing with self-care. You know, this means you're just making it prioritized. And, you know, you're not focusing on the quick fixes. So, you know, some examples of how self-care can prioritize discipline is, you know, learning how to say no when you don't want to or can't do something. Oh, my goodness. I'm such a yes woman. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's this terminology we use in my school about being voluntold. I'm not volunteering, but basically one of the higher ups in my school is telling me to do it, but I have to look like I'm volunteering. So, you know, it's about setting those boundaries of saying no. 
Like, for example, um, one of the clubs I'm a part of, we host an annual networking tea party um, during Women's History Month in March. And I told everyone, I said, after March, I will not be doing any more campus events or leading anything else. You know, I've done a lot this whole school year from 2022 to 2023. I need to enjoy the rest of my senior year. You know, stuff like that. Or like, you know, let's say you don't want to go out. Don't feel pressure to say yes. Um, another example is, you know, waking up early to make time to meditate, journal, or work out. Oh my goodness, I've tried to do the gym. Jim and I are not friends. <laughs> and this is a retired athlete talking. Like, I, you wouldn't believe it. Like, people growing up with me, I was a hardcore track athlete. I mean, I was really in there. But, you know, that doesn't work for me anymore, you know, because of injuries and such. So, you know, I journal. Um, I meditate. Do I do it every day? No, I probably do it once every three months. <laughs> Meditation a little more so, but, you know, find the thing that works for you. Which mean, which ties me into my last rule um, on mindful, on mindful.org. Self-care is not a one-size-fits-all. There's a reason why you go into clothing stores and there's different dress sizes. A zero is not going to fit everybody. An extra large is not going to fit everybody. Everyone is born different shapes, sizes, and uniqueness. Which means, you know, self-care is not a one-size-fits-all. Just because meditation and yoga and maybe journaling um, once every three months may work for me, doesn't mean that it'll work for somebody else, you know? So, you know, if you think that you have to start giving up most of, like, things around you and, you know, commitments in that in order to truly dedicate yourself to self-care, um, you know, the answer is yes. Sometimes you'll have to. You know, if the work that you're doing in the world is larger than ourselves, then, you know, we must define clear boundaries that help us to ensure long-term physical, mental, and spiritual health. Because, you know, if you've been doing something because you think like, oh, you think to yourself, like, I really need to stop doing this. And then you have to take your own advice. Remember, I told self-care can be difficult, you know. Don't always feel like you have to do things, you know. You know, that's not to say that there aren't healthy indulgences that you can enjoy but, you know, defined by small actions, we can take the help that restores balance in our life and brings us joy and happiness, which is the most important thing in the world. And, you know, you know how that's important for me because, you know, <laughs> as a creative, sometimes, oh my gosh, if you were, like, I have two friends that are art majors here, and oh my goodness, I applaud them every time, um, beautiful black love couple that I know um shout out to y'all I know you're listening um but you know I applaud them because you know they have to produce over like 20 different pieces of artwork in a semester and our college semesters are from like August end of August to mid-December and then end of January into maybe the first week of May imagine having to do 20 different paintings on command and you have all these rules and regulations because they're given assignments and you know so as a creative and you know since I am you know a host of a, my own podcast you know I thought it might be important because I feel like a lot of creatives um we create in different ways whether it's art music you know song writing or even the way that you know we do our own work within our professions so I just want to help y'all be mindful of the four stages of a creative brain. So the four stages of a creative brain is preparation. So this is when you come up with the wide range of ideas, you know, the freestyling, the different ideas connected to the creative task at hand. And, you know, and you're relying on the on the quieting you know, which allows us to go into the work mode. The second one is incubation. You know, at some point, you may have as many ideas as possible, 
but it's times that they go offline. This is kind of like that writer's block where it's like, you know, you may have to sleep, surf, cook, or enjoy life in order for the brain to, you know, kickstart again. And illumination is like the, aha, I've got it. Like, this is the moment where you reach your creative insight and you're like, yes. Sometimes it's unrelated and some cautious ideas that are linked together. And it's like, dang, I didn't even think of that. It could be something my friend said. Like, for example, um, I was talking about my podcast to a group of friends and then they were like, what if he did a podcast with like all our e-board members and we did like a girl talk? And I'm like, oh, I've been thinking about like different topics to do. That's smart. So, you know, this immediately catches a small twinkle in our eye. And then the fourth step is verification. When you have the reality check of that brilliant idea being brought to life in raw form. So this is like, you know, the thinking of the imagination to be more analytical and evaluated and on paper and kind of fine tune the idea to then begin to create. So how does mindfulness help with that? You know, between freestyle and control, um, you know, it's not just limited to creativity, you know. For example, a lot of things are improv when you think of jazz or rap or open mics. Like some things people are, you know, creating it on, you know, off the top. But, you know, it's more so about releasing control, but in the right amount where it's balanced with self-expression, you know. That allows us to, you know, produce creative results, you know, with creative results, you know, that lets us know that we need to control our networks and, you know, practicing a key balance, which is so important. So, you know, how do we apply these things, you know? Preparation. The first um, stage of the creative process that involves, you know, learning, trying to meditate before brainstorming. Um, <laughs> my guy best friend from back home said to me, like, what's your pre-podcast ritual? And I'm like, what? Pre-podcast ritual? Like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, what do you do to get yourself into the mood before you record? And I'm like, hmm, I didn't even think about that. So, you know, preparation is creating those rituals before. Whether it's, you know stuffing your face with your favorite food or you know meditating or maybe writing things down and you know creating a script for yourself um how to apply mindfulness in incubation you know this is useful and important for you know the undetermined phase you know many times when we go offline and try to relax and stop obsessing you know there's also short mindfulness that can calm our distractions like like sometimes when I feel myself having an anxiety or panic attack, I try to take deep, five deep breaths and count like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, you know, and you know, maybe that great idea can appear then, you know, you never know. And then for illumination, the third process, you know, when we practice that, this in improves our awareness, you know. Things become more clear. I can see my thoughts better. I can articulate my bird, my words better, you know. Our insights come to life and we can make it in a more clearer state of mind. And then lastly, verification, you know. This is the reality of my genius idea, you know. This is where I stay focused, positive, motivated without feeling defeated, you know. You know, even if the first attempt doesn't work out you know the song at first you don't succeed get yourself up and try again you know you got to try again get yourself up and try again try again you know you gotta you don't let things knock you off your feet you know the creative process is a window and like i said it's not limited to just podcasting and artistry and things even if it's completing a homework assignment so I know I'm running a little over, um, but I did want to include one last thing that I thought would be very important. Um, so the tips on how to apply mindfulness in the creative process. Um, some of that information did come from mindful.org. Great website if you really want to learn more about mindfulness 
and things. But um, the last thing I wanted to point out was being mindful of others because that's very important. Um, so I'll dive through these quickly. Um, I thank you all for being patient and listening in. So here are 13 ways that you can be um, meaningful and mindful of others. This comes from mindfulzen.co. Um, like I said, not all this material is mine. It is interpretations off of information also given. Um, so what's one thing you can do to be mindful of others? Start practicing gratitude. You know, this is setting aside time and remembering how grateful we are for them, you know. Um, whether this is a family member, friend, colleague, or neighbor, you know. Letting them know how much you mean to them, you know. Um, letters of thanks of like, you know, how they've been an impact in our life, you know. Or being just thankful for their presence. Um, the second one is making point to listen. You know the expression when someone's either when someone's talking they're either waiting to speak or actually listening so the difference are you hearing them or are you listening to them so you know so far sometimes they're so wrapped up in what we're going to say next instead of listening to that person so you know when you have a conversation make a point to listen closely you know put away your phone make that eye contact you know be present i hate when i'm having a serious conversation and someone whips out their phone. Like, to me, that's like, okay, I don't have your attention enough. So, you know, be mindful of that. Um, the third one is putting yourself in other people's shoes. You know, when you're faced with something difficult, how can I see it from that person's perspective? What am I doing to, you know, make sure that I can see it from their point of view? You know, am I just, you know only being biased and seeing things my way or am I also considering hmm well if this was done to me and I was in that person's shoes how would it make me feel you know some questions to ask yourself what might they be feeling what are their needs or what can I do to best help them the fourth one is you know random acts of kindness oh my gosh I call myself jokingly a sugar mama because I love gift giving to my friends um I have two really good friends here at school with me now. Um, and um, at the start of the spring semester, um, I got my money together and I did gift bags. We all had the same Juicy Couture pajamas, slippers. I all got us the same bedazzled cup, but in different colors and a friendship bracelet. And it was just out the blue. And they're just like, oh my gosh, Kristen, like, you know, why'd you do this? And I'm like, you know, I love y'all. I just want to let you feel appreciated and let you know that, you know, this is just an act of kindness that I'm doing from the bottom of my heart. So, you know, it can be something like buying coffee or holding the door, helping to offer with a project. It's not limited to just money, but, you know, it's the thought that counts. Number five is volunteering your time. Random acts of kindness are next level. Oh, my goodness. I love volunteer work. Um, I recently volunteered to help build um, wooden stakes to grow um, veggies for an underserviced community in my um, the town of my college. And, you know, it felt great. I was out there in 80-degree weather with a power drill and nails, drilling stuff into wood, no kind of background experience in it, but it's the thought that count. And, you know... And it doesn't have to be exposed to needs of community, but you will also feel connected with the people that you help. You build connections just by the people that you're, you know, doing that work with and, you know, how important that is. And um, number six is thinking of others when making plans. Um, you know, send that invite, you know. If you want to take a vacation, you know, try to consider, like, you know, not only picking it for yourself, but like, where do your group of friends want to go? Let's make this a collective thing. Hey, we're going on a trip. I don't want to plan everything, but I just want to make sure like, where do y'all want to go? You know, kind of making that effort to include others in your plans. You know, a lot of times, like I'm not really a going out person. I'm very introvert. I'd be in my room, but I appreciate that my friends still go like, hey, Kristen, we're going out. You want to come? Like it's the thought that, oh, they still invited me, you know? 
Number seven, travel more often, take a vacation, or, you know, don't be hanging out in the same friend's dorm room. Try somebody else's room. You know, sometimes we isolate ourselves in our communities and we easily forget that there are people with different experiences in the world. Be open to that, you know. Learn about new cultures and foods and customs. Don't be confined to the same things. Like, even though my friends and I do wind downs, every Thursday night we do an activity. Um, Like, tomorrow we're going bowling. So, you know, that's big. So, you know, it's stuff like that, you know, kind of stepping out of that. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go far or spend money again. Like, it, it's just, you know, the decisions that you make. Um, number eight, to check in on your friends regularly. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of my friends that I came into college with, they graduated already. And, you know, they're adulting. They be working. And, you know, we're not talking every day like how we used to in college. But, you know, I check in on them. I remember earlier in the episode I had mentioned that I had a friend that I started the wind downs with. She's currently in grad school right now, killing it. And we still try to make time for each other to at least FaceTime once a month or check in and text on each other. And we'd be having our wind downs via FaceTime. And sometimes we don't get to once a month. Sometimes it's every two months or month and a half. And we have to be like, girl, sorry, I'm going through it. But, you know, check in on your friends regularly because you never know what's going on with someone. Um, you know, this is a little more touchy because, you know, everyone's family situation is different. But, you know, making your family feel important. Um, it is a central part of people in our lives. We cannot choose our family. You know, our family will always be our family. And, you know, show your loved ones how much you care. Ten, stop multitasking. Oh, my gosh. I'm so bad with multitasking. Multitasking could be to-do lists. Or putting all your eggs in one basket or being like, yeah, I'll speak for that event. I'll be at that event. I'll do that. You know, that's when we do too many things at once and, you know, we get chaotic, you know. When you're constantly multitasking, you're not giving your full attention to anything. So, you know, if you want to be more mindful of others, it's important to slow down and focus at the task at hand. Um, Number 11, to mediate regularly. Again, that's the slow down. That's the, you know, stopping the multitasking. That's meditating to train your mind to be more present and focused. Like, hmm, how was I feeling today? Meditations are not like, you know, it doesn't have to always be the guided meditations. I like guided meditations sometimes. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I sit in my head and I let my delusions flow. Like, hmm, how am I feeling? How is that making me feel? But, you know, checking myself and meditating, focusing on my breathing, letting other thoughts pass through my mind. Allowing myself to feel the emotions that I'm feeling. Because, you know, and then I know I'm tying multitasking the one before. But, you know, it begins to cloud who we are. And, you know, our mind is not present. You know, mediation is something that, sorry, mediation. <laughs> Meditation benefits all areas of life, you know, allows us to be present. Um, number 12, be more generous with your praise. I'm so bad at this. I hate awards recognition and the spotlight I always refer to myself as a background character doing the good lord's work and I hate when I'm recognized oh my god I hate when I'm recognized and it's kind of just like ah attention spotlight I don't like attention but you know being generous with praise is not just limited to that that's someone really maybe even just being thankful or honoring you and saying like hey I see you doing this and you're killing it and you're, you know, you, you're just such an inspiration, you know. A lot of times it's easy to take things for granted and forget and appreciate the good things in our life and the good things that we've done. But, you know, when we're more mindful of others, we make an effort to notice positive things and express our gratitude of, you know, things that they do for us or things that we do for them. So, you know, one thing is being generous with your praise, you know. If something, someone does something you appreciate, say it. I'm not afraid to tell anyone, hey, I love your outfit. You have a fire smile or, ooh, that music is fire. Tell me more about this artist, you know, like it goes the wrong way. And, you know, the last thing that's most important of all is to take care of yourself. Remember, you cannot be mindful of others if you're not mindful and taking care of yourself. Schedule time for yourself. Like I said, your self-care plan, whether it's to meditate, whether you want to wind down, of course, 21 and up, but, you know, it's making that time.
And that's what's most important. So, you know, being mindful of others and ourselves makes us more connected and fulfilled. And it also creates a ripple effect of connection and compassion. Wow, I know we talked about a lot today, a lot to unpack, a lot of self-reflection. Let's just, we did it. Now we can be more mindful of ourselves and others. Um, I won't read it, but um, there is a PDF document of 21 mindfulness exercises and, and activities for adults that are not limited just to the individual, but for group settings whether you want to get a group together. And some of them are really fun and interactive, but I'll allow you guys to read that on your own. You can find that on positivepsychology.com. Again, that's positivepsychology.com. And you're going to type in 21 mindfulness exercises and activities for adults. Mm, I just want to say thank you all so much for tuning in today. We're going to shift back gears back into drive. We're pulling into the K-turn, taking a K-turn out. Ah!